Put your hands together and testify that God's touched you. Amen. It is good to be in the house of the Lord tonight with you. Praise the name of the Lord. If, we're going to, if you would stand with me, we're going to do our declaration of faith before I begin. We're going to say this together by faith. Are you ready? Here we go. Lord, today by faith, we declare that we're walking in the manifestation season. As your faithful remnant, we will house your very presence. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We're no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We'll not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we'll give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We'll live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. We declare your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven. Give God praise before you're seated. I also want to say and recognize before I begin tonight, uh, a man who's given his whole life to ministry is good to have him with us tonight. Pastor Lemons, we welcome you here. Glad you're with us. Tonight, I'm going to get it right into the Word the Lord has laid on my heart. And uh, tonight, I basically really want to continue with the message of victory and proclaim that God wants us to have a season of victory. And, and I'm going to continue to explain His plan of victory to help clarify. I want us to understand there's two elements involved in His plan. And those two elements are you and them. You see, God wants victory for his people. He cares for each and every one of you. But he also cares for them. Or, well, Randy, who is them? Well, you see, Jesus is a great shepherd who tends and cares for his sheep. But he also cares for the lost sheep. Remember, he left the 99 for the one lost lamb. So his plan for victory is for his people, but it's also for the lost. My greatest victory was in February 1997 when I became a believer. And because of my victory, I should want everyone else to have victory too. I also want to point tonight once again to the value of worship. How that worship is always associated with God's presence. That worship sets the atmosphere for God to move in. Our worship should be based upon the condition you're in, whether it's a good day or it's a bad day. You should either be worshiping Him because you're in a mess or because you're not in a mess. And too many times we won't worship him because we're not in a place where we don't care what people think. And we're going to talk about the value of worship before we're done. But I want to begin with an opening scripture to set this thing up tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 5, verse 19 and 20. And the scripture says, For by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. So also by one man's disobedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. He's saying where sin abounded, God's grace abounded even more. In other words, when Adam sinned in the beginning of time until now, his sin has led to many being sinners. But since Jesus went to Calvary and paid for our sins, many have been made righteous. Have you been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ? So give him a hand clap of praise. So here's what God is showing me. Where sin abounds, believe me, sin is abounding in our world today. It's rampant. If that part of the scripture is true, the next words must be true. Much more will God's grace abound. Sin will never get to the height of the debt that God's grace can't overcome it. You see, I believe the Lord is coming back soon. 
And this loving, gracious God we serve, I believe, is opening the floodgates of grace to give many an opportunity to become righteous. I believe the greatest hour for the church is now. And I pray we don't fail to seize this opportunity. If we're ever going to do something to advance the kingdom of God, church, it's now. And I hope we understand advancing the kingdom of God means growing the kingdom through conversions for the fields are white for harvest. And God gave me a word. Time's not long. Whatever you're going to do for God, do it now while God's grace is abounding. Because I don't believe God is going to come back for a week in an anemic church. I believe we're in the hour of seeing our sons and our daughters coming from far back to the house of the Lord. And that ought to excite us. We've all got so many people who we love who needs God's grace. There's so many people who are bound because of their failures and their mistakes who've lost all hope. And I'm going to do my part with everything that's within me to see to it they get to hear of God's grace from my lips. And it's time for the church to arise and shine and let our enemies be scattered. Now, tonight, I'm going to piece some things together before I'm done, connecting the dots, uh, outlining God's plan for this hour. And what I'm going to try to do is create a bomb. Yeah, one I can drop on our enemy and annihilate him. So let's shift gears for just a moment. I'm going to go to the book of Mark, chapter 5. Now, you heard a little bit about this chapter this morning from the pastor, you know. He started out this morning to Mark 12, said, I'm okay. Then he went to Mark 19, said, I'm still good. And then he had to go to Mark 5. And I was really hoping he had one of them shock collars on him and I could find the button to it. I was going to roll him. But no, we're just in this thing together and we're connecting together. And God has something he's really wanting to put at the heart of this church today. So before I tell you about the, I'll get in this passage, I want to tell you about the man in the passage before we read it. Here's a man at the end of his rope. He had literally lost his mind. He was deemed crazy. He was full of demons. He's so bad, even the bad folks didn't want him around. Matter of fact, to the point society had literally cast him out to the point he was not allowed even to live in the city. His home became a graveyard. That's true. I'm not making this stuff up. He was a marked man, marked as a man who had no value, no self-worth, no deserving of nothing. He had been pushed away by society. He was angry, crazed, and he was a vile man. He had fled to the mountains, living in a graveyard amongst the tombs. And the Bible tells us they had repeatedly tried to control this man by putting him in chains. But he was so violent, he would break them into pieces. So they drove him out of the city because no one could tame him. They describe him as an animal. Now he's in the mountains living amongst the tombs. Now most of us would be scared to walk through a graveyard, let alone at night, but actually live in one. Can you imagine living like that and nobody cares if you are? They actually just wish he would just go away. Verse 5 says, always, it doesn't say sometimes, it said that always, day and night, he was in the mountains, in the tombs, crying out as he would cut himself with stones. The only way they could document the statement meant they had to be able to witness him doing these things. They would have had to been sitting perhaps out on their porch hearing him scream. Or perhaps they were woken in the middle of the night hearing him screaming. And they would just have to close their windows to go back to sleep. While he faced his demons all alone as an outcast. Some people hear this and think that's horrible. Truth is, we still do this today, folks, for a lot less reasons than them being possessed by 2,000 demons. We find ourselves treating a lot of people this way in the culture we live in today. 
We cast them out. We cast them out of our social groups. We cast them out of our churches. We cast them out of our society. We cast them out of our families, out of our lives. And we declare them unclean. We want to isolate them. As long as they're not in our neighborhoods, as long as they're not in our churches, or as long as they're not on our, in our class, we're okay with it. We drive by them. We walk by them. The outcasts who are down on their luck. We turn our heads. We act like we don't see them or the sign they made out of cardboard. We just... We justify to ourselves they're getting what they deserve. It's their own fault. And many times it is. We judge them by their appearances, never knowing their hearts or story, who they used to be or who they were supposed to be. Not even considering the same God that created me created them. And that the same God who pulled me out of my mess wants to pull them out of their mess. The same God who saved me wants to save them. It's got to be their fault for living like they are. It is in most cases. But how are you so certain? How do you know that it is always their fault? And even if it is, do you know it was my fault I was like I was? Yet someone still loved me, and God still saved me. We assume everyone that is poor and brokenhearted or unemployed or homeless, it's their fault. One thing for sure is they've all been told that. Raped at seven years old. It was their fault. Come on now, I'm going to get real here. Beaten daily by alcoholic stepdad. It was their fault. Born out of wedlock. It was their fault. Born with a birth defect. It was their fault. Never had a father or mother. It was their fault. Mind destroyed by the horrors of war on a foreign battlefield. But it was their fault. I met a young man once whose dad dies and his stepmom commits suicide two months later. While he was only 13 years old, was it his fault? I had an uncle who became an alcoholic, and as a child, I believed it was his fault. It was, but it wasn't until later I came to understand why he chose to be an alcoholic, that it had to do with him actually being a prisoner of war for two years in World War II. And as I got older and learned of his horror, I never viewed him the same, learning of the torture that he went through because he was serving his country faithfully learning he had been captured by the Germans and put in a German prison camp where he was put in a dirt hole to sleep for days with only a bamboo covering, wearing no clothes, and occasionally taken out of this hole only to be tortured. And on several occasions, they would put a gun to his head as they threatened to kill him. And they run bamboo shoots up under his fingernails, causing them to fall off for over two years until finally he was released from the concentration camp. And although he came home to safety, he relived the experience nightly, reliving nightly the nightmares over and over. So he would drink profusely, trying to kill the emotional pain just to get a night's sleep without the nightmares. You see, I wept when I learned the truth about this man, that I had judged so critically for his behavior. It didn't validate his behavior, but it validated his pain and the root of his actions. And we all do this so quick to judge them by their behavior, but so reluctant to find out the cause and lend them the help they need. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord here at the VA hospital before he passed. And I often pondered the thought, if only maybe someone would have told him about Jesus sooner. If someone would have seen him as more than an alcoholic, but as a wounded man, just maybe he would have spared his life of a lot of pain. Maybe if someone would have took the time to find the root of his behavior, 
instead of focusing so much on being appalled by his behavior, just maybe, I know this, regardless how society views them, to God who created them, they were uniquely created. Whether they're trying to scam me or manipulate me now, God loves them. While humanistic judge, judgment condemns them, God knows why they are like they are. Yet he loves them in spite of their sins, just like he loved me and you in spite of our sins. The answer to this, we got to see them like Jesus sees them. Well, how does he see them? I believe the same way that he saw the Roman soldiers who beat him, mocked him, crucified him. He saw them as men who were enslaved by Satan. He saw them with his own eyes and through his spiritual eyes. He even cried out for them to defend their behavior. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he was saying, if these men knew what was causing them to do what they're doing to me, they wouldn't do this to me. He saw into the spiritual realm, the demonic foes that were driving them to commit these acts towards him, forcing their bad behavior upon him. Yet these men had no clue while they were participating in this evil. See, Jesus hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. He sees sin as another one of his children had been captured. We struggle to tolerate the sins of a stranger and sadly at times even our own. Guess what? We were all created by God. Have you ever stopped to think the most evil man ever born was created by God? Everything that was created was created by God. But God never created him to be evil. That it was only by the demonic force of Satan they became evil. How can we say we have the love of God dwelling in our hearts when we shut the bowels of our compassion? Now, I need to move on. That's not the gist of my message, but it has a great association with it because right now I'm talking about them. You see, for 37 years, people saw me as an impossibility. I didn't blame them. I saw myself the same way. Till one woman saw me as God saw me. She even saw a vision that showed her who I could be. This man in the gathering sure liked he looked like he would never be the same again, that he had done, done too much, he done went too far feeling not worthy enough to even have an encounter with God. But Jesus showed us something about his character, the heart of the Father in this exchange in chapter 5, that none of us has done too much that he don't love us, and that he's not a respecter of persons, that no matter where we're at, he will find us and he will visit us. The psalmist said, even if I make my bed in hell, he's there. See, there's so many folks in our society today that have made bad mistakes and they made bad choices, for which there are consequences for they pay for each day of their lives. And now they live as outcasts, condemned, feeling unworthy, can't forgive themselves. They don't understand this thing called mercy and grace. It doesn't come from a man. It comes from the only father that many will ever know that wants so desperately to know them. And while society yearns to hate them, he yearns to love them. And we as humans can never truly give them grace and mercy, yet we, we, can be, we can be an extension of it. We can't forgive sins, but we, forget, we can forgive the sinner because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you know how many people last night in our society, maybe even in your neighborhood, laid in their rooms, their tombs, spiritually dead to life, and even cried themselves to sleep because of how they felt about themselves or what they've done? or about the suffering conditions they're living in, feeling trapped with no way out, full of low self-esteem, inferiority, no family, no friends, isolated, stressed, tormented, 
or perhaps any one of you all wanted them last night. They know what they've done, but they don't know how to fix it. Let's let the Word of God tell us and show us by example how to reach them. And I'll say this to begin. First of all, you got to want to reach them. Mark 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he, meaning Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had been dwelling in the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles were broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains, in the tombs, crying out, and cutting himself with stones. See, cutting's not just a 21st century act. It's been going on over 2,000 years, even still today in our society. And verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Then in verse 7 through 13, it explains that Jesus delivers this man of 5,000 demons, sends them into the herd of pigs, and they're drowned. Then let's go to 14 and 15 for time's sake. It says that those that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one that had been demon-possessed and named Legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. Now, I'm using the worst-case scenario of a demon-possessed man not to preach on demon possession. I used it to make the case that no matter how bad their situation is or how bad your situation is, God cares for them and God cares for you and he can heal you of your dead life. The question that's raised here is, what should you do when you have no hope, when you have no friends, and you have no family? And you're stuck in a dead tomb place because of bad decisions, failed dreams, pushed away by society, isolated, bound by chains, maybe because of faults of your own or by things that weren't your fault. Wishing you could go back and undo what you let the wrong, what you did wrong. When maybe you made a wrong choice that day, but you feel like it's too late. You feel like the damage is done, and now you live in regret. Feel you've just been marked by your failures, unjustly been victimized. I trusted him. What do you do? You do like this man did. You run like a crazy man to Jesus, and you fall at his feet, and you worship him. See, this man constantly lived death, though alive. You know, there can't be nothing worse emotionally than being dead and alive at the same time. You see, emotional pain is one of the hardest pains to bear. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You can't think. It's like your mind's doing somersaults, and it won't stop. And there's not a narcotic to fix it. Maybe suppress it but it'll never fix it. You know, one of the most disturbing diseases I've seen in my life is this thing called Lou Gehrig's disease and its effect upon the human body. I had a brother-in-law who died of it. This disease was so cruel and chilling. It's like you're alive in a dead body. He couldn't move any part of his body. He couldn't speak a word, only communicate by a wink, to yes or no questions. Yet he could still feel pain. He could still hear everything. And I remember standing by his bed, sharing the gospel of God's love for him and the importance of him accepting Christ as his Savior. And when I asked him, did he want to receive Christ, he answered me, two winks of his eyes, which meant yes. 
I prayed the sinner's prayer with him. And I told him to pray this in his heart. And when I finished, I asked him, did you receive Christ? And with tears rolling down his face, and with two winks, he signaled, yes. And we stood and we cried and we rejoiced with him just hours before his departure to glory. See, the only concern society had for this man at the gatherings was making sure he couldn't affect their lives. Society had given up on him. We must all ask ourselves, who have we given up on? Yet God never gives up on them. He didn't give up on me. Yet we say we are Christians. Isn't that to be Christ-like, like Christ? Well, by the time we get done seeing how God handles the demonic field outcast, we'll really see if we are Christ-like by seeing how God handles the worst of the worst. We got to see people like Christ sees people. We got to look beyond their faults, and we got to see their needs. We got to see them bound and in need of a Savior, trapped, tormented, regardless whose fault it is that they're in this condition. It could be because of their sin or as well because of someone else's sin. It could be because of they're ashamed of what they did or they're ashamed of what someone did to them. See, sin is sin and shame is shame, but we will never help them simply by laying blame. We got to see them for who they could be, not for what they've become. We got to help lead them to the one who can remove sin from their life that they don't have the strength to do. See, I felt this message was so relevant for the fact that if we're going to see a manifestation of God's glory and fulfill God's mandate for this church, we have got to win the lost at any cost because they are a part of God's plan of victory as well. We got to see people like Jesus sees them. Hurt, broken, abused, deceived, but of value. See, this man was in a region called the Gatherings. And gathering means reward at the end. Oh, hear me now. There's hope at the end of your rope. So tonight, I want to encourage some folks who are in that place. Now I'm talking to you. Who are at the end of the rope. Been beating yourself up. Been living in regrets and feeling hopeless. I feel things beginning to stir. And you're about to get your reward. That this is going to be a year of victory in this house. So many of you wishing what you were going through was over. I'm fixing to be preaching life. For some folks tonight, this atmosphere is conducive to healing and deliverance and breakthroughs. I want you to make sure you wake up and stay with me. Because God wants to pick you right back up. This man was stuck in his condition, setting and believing this is the cards I've been dealt. It's always going to be like this. I must have done this to myself. And he had to ask a thousand times, why? Why couldn't I be like them? Yet the whole time he had no clue, just like you, that just across the sea was the answer, his hope. Little did he know help was on the way. See, I read in my Bible that he's our very present help in times of trouble. Now, I'm going to put the brakes on right here for just a moment. To better understand what I'm fixing to drive home, we got to back up and set this up. we got to go to Mark 3, and I want you to stay with me here. Look at your neighbor and say, your help's on the way. Now, I'm going to walk through this, just summarizing chapter 3 and 4 before I get back to 5. In chapter 3, Jesus heals the weatherman's hand on the Sabbath. This infuriates the Pharisees, the religious folks, messed up. 
their self-made theology and traditions. Still happening today. Too many religious folks still trying to tell Jesus what he can and can't do in the church. That's why he's doing crusades over in the impoverished countries of the world. They're not stuck in traditions and bound by materialism. They have crusades drawing crowds of 100,000, and God is healing and saving them by the thousands. It's where people don't care if it's too hot or too cold. It's where they don't care whether the songs are fast or slow, whether they're new or they're old, if the service is too long or if the service is too short. See, because we're too worried about having a comfortable experience. But I want to tell you, it wasn't very comfortable for our Savior being crucified on an old rugged cross so we could experience the power of salvation. You see, the religious leaders began to plot against Jesus. Upon hearing the uproar, Jesus leaves. If we want to drive God's presence out of this place, just keep criticizing how he moves. See, Jesus tarries down to the sea with 12 men who are chosen to follow him. And the Bible says a great multitude follows him to the seashore. And he told the disciples to keep a small boat ready in case he has to flee the crowd. While by the sea, verse 10 says, revival broke out. You don't say the word revival broke out, but that's why I, what I call it. Because you know why? It says, he healed as many as had afflictions. That the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him. And they cried out saying, you are the son of God. I mean, they was having them some church down by the sea of Galilee. That wherever his presence is, you can have church. You can have church on this parking lot. But you can also have church on the Walmart parking lot. See, then in verse 13 says, he left when church was over. He went up on the mountain with the ones he had chosen, speaking of the 12. Then it says he appointed them as his disciples. It says, then he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. He had just demonstrated by the sea everything he had called them to do. He said, God will always prepare you before he sends you. After this, they go to Capernaum, to Peter's house, just to relax and eat and to be refreshed. It's been a long day. But they no more get there, and again, here comes the multitude. Such a multitude of people, it says they can't even take time to eat. Verse 21 says, his own people, meaning his relatives, had heard what all had been going on, and the Bible says they showed up to take hold of him. They thought maybe he lost his mind here of everything that he had done. How many of you got family members that when you got saved, they thought you lost your mind? Believing in all this stuff, going around speaking in tongues and casting out demons. Same here, his relatives only knew him as a young man, as a carpenter by trade. They were fearful this stuff was going to get him killed. The scribes even begin to verbally attack him. And verse 31 says, Mama shows up with his brothers to rescue him, but Jesus still refuses to leave. Then they go to chapter 4. Verse 1 says, And again he began to teach by the sea, and again a multitude showed up. This time, because of the crowd, he stands in a boat while the multitude stands on the shore. And he teaches them, he taught them many parables that day. Now watch. Once he again, he begins to ministering to a multitude. Yet on the same day, Later that evening, he says to his disciples, let's go cross over to the other side. In other words, come on, get in the boat. I got somewhere I got to go. Now, this would be the, the disciples' first ministry trip with Jesus. Now, you know, they were pumped. Man, he had been drawing thousands already, and we're just getting started. They didn't know where they were going, but hey, if he's drawing thousands, 
I'll bet there'll be thousands more at the next stop. Ministry is booming. This guy's got the goods, they thought. I can just see them, all zealous. They're in the boat with Jesus, shouting to those over on the shore as they're leaving. Hey, we're going on a mission trip with Jesus. We're going to Pensacola to that great revival down there. I tend to imagine Peter be like shouting out of the boat to his old friends arrogantly, as he was known to be at times. Hey, he chose me. Hey, did he choose you? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> I'm rolling with the king, and off they go. Then, of course, after they begin to travel on a ways into the sea, the epic boat and storm story takes place. They're not so excited now. Matter of fact, they're scared to death. A great storm arises, life-threatening. They begin to panic. Jesus is asleep. Disciples become fearful. They accuse Jesus of not even caring about what he, what he got them into. They question Jesus' motives. Master, do you care not that we perish? And he stands up and he rebukes the winds and the waves, and he speaks peace. Be still, and the wind and the waves obey, and the disciples are amazed. Now, I said all of that to show you what took place prior to Jesus and his disciples arriving at the Gadarenes in chapter 5. So remember, prior to the arrival, there was a great revival. It happened. Multitudes of people were touched and healed by Jesus. The disciples were chosen to go on their first mission trip with Jesus. They encountered a great storm. They witnessed Jesus' authority. Now we're back to chapter 5. Jesus and the disciples arrive at the gatherings, not by chance, but by purpose. God sent them there. He had a plan. Jesus has been teaching the multitudes, healing the multitudes on the other side of this sea. But he felt it necessary to lead the multitude of worshipers to go to the other side of the sea to see one man. Remember, he will leave the 99 for the one. I want someone to get that tonight. He's here for you. If nobody else tonight, it's all about you. He was even willing to go through a great storm to get to this one crazy, demon-filled outcast. The one everybody avoided was the very one Jesus pursued. Apparently, not only the townspeople heard his cries, God heard them too. And he sent his son, Jesus. How many of you would respond to your children if you heard them crying regardless of what they'd done? Come on. Somebody ought to be getting in tune with this by now. This man sat day and night in a place of many tombs, alive but surrounded by death, thinking no one cared. After all, they threw him out of the city. In Mark 5, verse 1 again, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. Gathering, which means the end is the reward. Now, let me see if I can preach this. The formalities are over. I pointed out how we must be more compassionate to the outcast, to them. And I pointed out God cares about the outcast, the hurting. And we now can bring these two elements together, you and them. So now we can have some church up in here. You see, here is Jesus and his disciples coming to the shore of the gatherings. And the disciples are looking on the shore. They see no one. May have been thinking, we're in the wrong place. There should be thousands of people here. Hey, somebody holler, Jesus, make, make sure this is the right spot. And as they reach the shore, they hear this loud death cry. They look up to see this one man on top of this mountain, hollering and screaming, acting like a crazy man, prejudging him that he's probably run the crowd off. Immediately, Thomas doubts this is the right place. He hollers, Jesus, I think we're in the wrong place. And Jesus looks and says, nope, 
This is the right place. Now, that's not the King James Version right there. That's that MOV version. What's that? My own version. And Jesus stepped out of the boat, and that crazy man on the mountain comes running down and towards him. Remember, the Bible says he has demons in him. But it still wasn't enough to keep Jesus away from him. Now, I need someone right here to give God some praise. It doesn't matter what shape you're in, what you did, or your neighbor did, or your child did, or didn't do, that no matter what you're going through, it's not enough to keep Jesus from visiting you. See, your best friend may abandon you, your family might reject you, but he stays true to his word that he will never leave you or forsake you. That he'll show up right where you are while you're in your mess, while you're acting all crazy like you done lost your mind. He will pursue you. He will come after you. He will leave the multitude to find you, go through whatever it takes to get to you, hell or high water, because he's made up his mind about you, that he wants you, and he wants you, and he wants you. Somebody needs to praise him for wanting you and for pursuing you. Praise the name of the Lord. The Bible says this man runs deliberately, intentionally to Jesus and falls down at his feet and worships him. We don't talk much about his worship. We usually spend more time talking about his demons. I'm not here to talk about his demons. That's all folks want to talk about is someone's demons. God's not seeking his demons. They have no authority. He wants his worship. He's drawn to worship. The man falls down to worship Jesus, and as a result, guess what? The next thing that happens, God set him free. Notice when the deliverance took place. At the end of his worship, at the end of his worship, he received his reward. Remember, the gatherings means what? The end of the reward. What's the Bible say? That he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently seeking God, folks, is worship. And as a result, he cast 5,000 demons out of this man and set him in his right mind. He was the guy people didn't want to bother with. Everybody tried to bind him, but no one ever tried to free him. And we're still doing it today in the American churches with our critical prejudgment of others, not only on the outside, but even in the church. He's a guy we don't want to sit by us. Look how he's dressed. Looks like he slept in his clothes. He did. I can see he ain't right. He's not. What's she doing here? Ain't she the girl that, never calling her by her name, only by her shame. Can I tell you she has a name and that God knows it and he will call her by no other name, but he might even give her a new name. See, this man is the kind that will clear a church out. Will make the religious folks start hollering, unclean, unclean. Let me ask you something. Do you go to the hospital with the expectation you're going to see, you're not going to see any sick, fo sick folks in there? Do you understand there's going to be two kinds of people that are going to be there? There's going to be those who are sick, and then there's going to be those trying to help the sick. Do you realize people even become doctors to help the sick? Then why shouldn't we expect to see both in the church? Why don't people become Christians to help the lost, the dying, the hurt, the rejected, the messed up, and the broken? That's who Jesus came and died for. He said, I didn't come for the well. I came for those in need of a physician. So why would we not expect them to be here in the church?
Matter of fact, if they're not here in our church, we ought to be looking for what are we doing wrong. The church isn't for those who got it all together. It's for those who are trying to get it together. It's to be a spiritual hospital. It's to be a refuge. It's to be a safe place. The broken are looking for a place that won't hurt them anymore. They're looking for a family that won't abuse them. They're looking for a place where they can lie and they can cry until God makes everything all right. A place where people will embrace them. Folks, this man was as bad as bad can get. And most folks ain't even this close to being this bad. Many have simply just made a bad decision. Let's stop beating up people. Let's stop keeping them from getting to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only hope they got. He was the only hope you and I had. And the Bible said this man was in the mountains amongst the tombs. He was obviously bipolar, battling depression, full of oppression, depression, possession, every kind of session there is. The Bible said he would cut himself with stones. And that word in the Greek translates to law. So it would be safe to say he would cut himself with the law. The law that could never save him, only convict him. Cut after cut. I keep feeling. I can't get it right. It's my fault. The law would constantly condemn him. Jesus had to show up to show the law where sin doth abound, much more does my grace abound. To inform sinners that you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. And although the law is necessary to convict you, you are a sinner, God's grace is necessary for you to be able to overcome what the law convicts you of. <laughs> necessary to redeem you, to regenerate you, so that a judicial act can justify you as though you had never sinned and never violated the law, declaring you pardoned by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, to where therefore you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You need scripture to make sure I'm not going crazy too? Romans 6 and 14 says, For sin shall have no dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. But I like to add Romans 8 and 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, God sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, what Jesus did at Calvary, crucified for the sins of the world, he paid for your sins, my sins, with his blood, and did what the law could not do and saved us. He did it for you, but he also did it for them. So that now, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that we can have life and have it more abundantly. Not just be convicted, but also be forgiven. So that we would not be also, but so <clears throat> we could not be condemned by, so we would not be condemned by our sins. To where therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. The law did its part to convict you of your sins, but you must let Christ do his part and forgive you of them and free you from them. Let him do what only he can do. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. And whether it's your fault or not is not a determining factor to whether you can be saved or not. It's whether or not you're willing to call upon his name and ask him for his mercy and his grace. That he promised to whosoever called upon him. Now speaking of the law, Leviticus 21 says a high priest cannot touch anything dead or be near any dead thing. That's old covenant. But notice under the new covenant, under grace, this man was able to run to Jesus. 
And Jesus was able to be near this man who was dead in trespasses and sin. Because of grace, Jesus, our high priest, can declare, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy burden, and I shall give you rest. To God, sending Jesus to free this one worshiper was just as important as setting the multitude free. Casting 5,000 demons out of one man was just as important as casting a demon out of 5,000 men. And what attracts God to worship? And God is looking for a worshiper, regardless of the shape you're in. Sinner, backslider, bound, an outcast, a victim, it doesn't matter. I told you the gatherings means reward at the end. Well, at the end of this, man's worship, God delivered him. There's folks who are in messes and trials that have been bound and oppressed for years. But I'm here you tonight. At the end of your worship, God's ready to move your mountain. But you've got to worship him. I use this example of this man to show you regardless of what state you're in, you can worship. And if you worship, there is always a reward at the end. I want to ask my musicians if they come. I want to clarify the call that God's given tonight. That it's for you and it's for them. There is grace here tonight for you to get victory over your circumstances. But this message has also been to the church to instruct us in order for them to have victory in here. We got to get our hearts right to accept those who are trying to get their hearts right in here. Not to criticize them, but to help them. If we're going to have victory in here for you and for them, we got to learn to worship. Why? Because it attracts his presence. And in his presence, people can be healed and touched and delivered and set in their right minds. If he wants the multitudes, we got to learn how to help the one. Would you stand with your feet to me now? I want to propose a question to everyone in here. If you knew you were one worship away from everything coming to pass you've been petitioning God for, how would you worship? You've got to get this in your mind. How would you worship him tonight if you knew you were one worship away from a victory, from deliverance, from healing, from a financial breakthrough, from bondage? from a son or daughter or a spouse getting saved. If you're one worship away from being set in your right mind, some are going, yeah, if I knew for sure that was true tonight, how do you know you're not unless you do, and you do it by faith? In just a moment, I'm going to give a call. There's two calls that God wants to give tonight to this body. It's not a selective call to worship. God's calling every one of us to worship. So before I give this call tonight, I want us to connect with what was going on this morning. You've seen when this body came together and it created an atmosphere of worship, you began to watch God begin to move. Now, some of you came this morning and you're probably saying, well, I went to the altar this morning. Well, I, let me encourage you. You need to come again. You need to keep pursuing God. 
And you need to keep coming and commanding those things to leave. And there's people in this place tonight, you're in situations and circumstances, and they're not over yet. And I come tonight just to tell you that God cares about you. And He cares about what you're going through. And that tonight He wants to minister to you. But there's also something else God wants to do in this place tonight. So before I give this call, the first thing I want us to do, I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in a time of worship. And I want us to worship. Worship as though you're just one worship away from God touching you or you're one worship away from God touching someone that you love. And then in a minute, I'm going to come and I'm going to give a call. And in this atmosphere of worship tonight, God wants to do something very special in the lives of his people. Would you go ahead, John? Would you stand and worship, please? Bye. 
The first call God wants to make, if you're here tonight and that's your heart, God, I need you to rescue me. God, I need to help me to overcome, to get past, to get out of it, get past this thing that I'm dealing with in my life. If that's you, I want to call you first to this altar. Come and let God deliver you. Let God bring you out of this thing. If that's you, step out and I'm going to ask you to come. And then the second call God wants to make tonight, that call is for you. The next call is for them them. If you have a loved one, you have a neighbor, a friend, someone that you know needs God to intercede in their lives, I want you to come tonight and I want you to come for a time of worship and intercede for those people that God would touch their lives. And if you believe you want to be committed to this thing, because see what God wants to do He wants there to be victory for you, but he also wants there to be victory for them. He's ready for your loved ones to be saved. He's ready for us to do this thing. And through an atmosphere of worship, God will begin to move on their behalf. Would you come and would you worship? Go ahead, John, begin to worship.
Father, we come to you right now in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Right now, Father, we stand as a body, God. Making a commitment to your plan of victory, God. Understanding you, God. And understanding how loving you are, Father. How that you have a desire to help us through our trials and our tough times. That you have a love for us, God, and that you'll never leave us and you'll never forsake us, God. That you'll stick closer to us than a brother, God. God, that you have moved today within this body, God. And you've brought assurance after assurance, dear God, that you're for us. But also tonight, God, you've expressed to us the full plan of your victory. That is not just for us, but it's also for them. And Father, this hour, this moment, God, we have called out many. We've called them out, God. And we call them out of darkness, God, into your marvelous light. By your authority, Jesus, we command the evil bondage to be lifted off of their life, God. And God, we're encouraged to know that, God, regardless where they're at, whatever they're going through, whatever condition they're in, that, God, you've promised in your word that you'll visit them. And that you'll go and you'll seek and you'll find them, Father. You're a great shepherd. You watch over us. You keep us. But, Father, you know them too, those that are not in the fold. And it's our heart's desire, dear God. And we're committed to this plan, dear God. That, God, we'll do our best to worship you. To create an atmosphere that will draw your presence. That with any walk through these doors and to this body of believers, God, that will not prejudge, but God will open up our hearts and our arms and we'll, we'll hug them and we'll embrace them and we'll cry with them and we'll pray with them. 
will worship for them, God, Lord. That while we worship, God, the Spirit of the Lord will show them you, God. That they'll see you, God, in our worship, God. And believing that, God, they'll run to you. And that, Father, they'll come into the fold that this year, 2020, God, will be a year of victory, God. A year of victory for us, but a year of victory for them, God. We praise you, God, and we give you glory, God, for what you've done and what you're going to do in the lives of these people. In Jesus' mighty name, we all say amen. Praise the name of the Lord. God bless you. No.